the headlines tonight. American and Australian forces outseo Japanese in New Guinea. The dark side of the moon, is it pink or Floyd? And bison in Yellowstone says Grant. Plus, coming up, we find out whether the New York City sewer system can be used as a slide. Those are the headlines. Don't touch that dial. News bang. Wherever the truth hides, we will always find it. 1944. In 1944, CEO, New Guinea, American and Australian forces teamed up like an unstoppable Barbie brigade against the Japanese in a skirmish known as the Battle of Why Bother. It all started when General MacArthur had a few tinnies too many and bet Tojo Hirohito he could retake the Huon Peninsula by sunset. Meanwhile, back in Europe, Hitler was busy losing it faster than Britain sheds its empire. His cunning plan? Invade Russia in winter. Right proper knobbed, if you ask me. As bodies piled up like chairs at closing time, it became clear this warlock weren't cricket. Churchill turned to his secret weapon, nukes, enough megatons to vaporize your nan's Sunday roast. In the end, sanity prevailed, or did it? as Allied forces occupied Germany and Japan like slightly more polite versions of their adversaries. The Nuremberg trials followed, Nuremberg being chosen for its excellent beer halls and low-cost sausage deals. War criminals queued up for hours for their turn on the gibbet, before enjoying a leisurely stroll home past Daco Waitrose. Omerichud, 1973. On this day in 1973, Pink Floyd released their groundbreaking album The Dark Side of the Moon, sending millions of stoners and budding astronomers into a tailspin. The concept album was inspired by the band's own struggles with fame, drugs, and their formerly Gaga member, Sid Barrett, who had more U-turns than a roadmap. Recorded in two sessions at EMI Studios, London, or as it's now known, Paracetamol Central, the LP took only three weeks to complete, though most remember it feeling like several eternities thanks to the amount of mind-altering substances consumed during production. Engineer Dopey, Dick Wright, recalled, I think we recorded an album. There may have been music involved, but I was too busy riding unicorns on Jupiter. Packed with timeless hits such as Money, Time and Great Nomo's Bong Pipe, the record went stratospheric, cementing Pink Floyd as interstellar megastars. So next time you find yourself gazing up at that dark side of the moon, well done, mate. You've had one too many cosmic pints. And Daddy Seal, 1672. 1872, Yellowstone National Park was established by President Ulysses S. Grant, making it the first national park in both the U.S. and the world. Located in Wyoming, the least populous state despite being ten times larger than your average American bottom, Yellowstone is home to wildlife such as bears, bison, and the old faithful geyser, a geothermal feature so named because if you time it right, you can set your watch by its eruptions. Ulysses S. Grant himself was a man of many talents. He led the Union Army to victory during that uncivil war thingy between America's North and South face, then spent his presidency protecting African Americans like they were his own pandas at a Japanese zoo. His administration focused on reconstructing broken plantations and confiscating even more cotton-picking properties from those dastardly Confederates. The park draws millions of visitors every year thanks to its stunning landscapes, or as Grant once called them, God's lava lamps. 
Tourists flock from far and wide for selfies with Old Faithful or just to try not get eaten by one of those bears I mentioned earlier. A news bang was masking the faceless fibbers with a flurry of fact. Here's Shakanaka Giles with the weather forecast, predicting a day of drizzle, clouds, breezes and a touch of indoor fun. Uh, tomorrow, in the southeast, expect a bit of a drizzle, like a leaky tap that's been left on all night. It'll be a mild day, about the temperature of a freshly baked scone. Moving on to the Midlands, where it'll be a bit cloudy, but not enough to dampen your spirits. Think of it as a grey blanket that's been thrown over the region, but with a few holes for the sun to peek through. Up in the north, it'll be a bit breezy, like a group of overzealous fans at a football match. But don't worry, it's nothing a good scarf can't handle. And finally, in Scotland, it'll be a bit chilly, about the temperature of a fridge. But with the first day of the Edinburgh International Science Festival starting tomorrow, it's the perfect weather for some indoor fun. In summary, a bit of a damp start, a grey blanket, a breezy match, and some indoor fun. And that's all the weather. Nineteen forty-four. As the world remains entangled in the throes of World War II, the year 1944 bears witness to a decisive victory for the Allied forces. American and Australian troops emerged triumphant in the Battle of Sio, a crucial engagement in the Huon Peninsula campaign of New Guinea. The conflict, which has already claimed the lives of over 70 million souls, has seen the widespread use of aircraft and the devastating deployment of nuclear weapons. The war's end will see the defeated Axis powers occupied, with war crime tribunals conducted to hold the perpetrators accountable. But for now, the battle rages on, and to shed more light on this story, we turn to our correspondent, Brian Bastable. This is the day the world turned upside down. The day the great guns fell silent. A day that started with the ominous rumble of 1,000-pound shells falling from the sky. And now the world's great powers stand united, Axis and Allies as one. But this is no time for peace. No time for celebrations, for this is the day the battle begins anew, the day we turn our attention to the true enemy, the real villain of this story. I stand here on the blasted heath of Sio, surrounded by the debris of war, a scene of carnage and devastation that would bring a tear to the eye of the hardest of men. As I survey the destruction, a sudden movement catches my eye. A single Japanese soldier armed with nothing more than a katana stands defiantly in the face of overwhelming odds. This is the moment that defines a generation. The moment that will be remembered for generations to come. And as I speak, a new sound echoes across the battlefield. The sound of hope. The sound of a new dawn. For this is the day the war ends, 
the day we turn our backs on the horrors of the past and embrace a brighter future. And as I look out across the devastation, I know that we will never forget the sacrifices made here today. For this is the day the world changed forever. Brian Bastable, Newsbang. In a sobering turn of events, the year 2008 bore witness to a harrowing chapter in Armenian history. Military and police forces descended upon protesters in Yerevan, leaving ten individuals lifeless and a further hundred languishing in the cold embrace of confinement. The demonstrations, a fervent display of solidarity with opposition leaders such as Levanter Petrosyan, were tragically marred by this violent response. To delve deeper into the ramifications of these events, we turn to our correspondent, Ken Shit. Good evening, degenerates. Let's travel back to the year 2008, a time when the world was a dark and twisted place. A time when democracy was nothing more than a hollow shell and the will of the people was trampled underfoot by those who sought to maintain their stranglehold on power. In the beautiful city of Yerevan, Armenia, the people rose up in protest against the corrupt regime that had stolen their election. They demanded justice, they demanded change, and they demanded the return of their stolen democracy. But instead of listening to the voice of the people, the government responded with brutal force. The Armenian military and police, acting like a pack of rabid dogs, attacked the peaceful protesters with all the ferocity of a thousand hellhounds. They fired tear gas, they beat the protesters with batons, and they even used live ammunition against unarmed civilians. In the end, ten innocent souls lost their lives and one hundred more were dragged to prison like common criminals. This was a blatant act of oppression, a clear violation of human rights, and a stain on the reputation of the Armenian government. But it was also a testament to the resilience and courage of the Armenian people. In the face of tyranny, they stood their ground and they fought for their freedom with every ounce of strength they possessed. Tonight, we honor the memory of those who fell in the struggle for democracy in Yerevan. We stand with the people of Armenia and we demand justice for their suffering and we vow to continue fighting against the forces of oppression until every man, woman and child on this planet is free to live in peace and dignity. This is Ken Shit signing off from the front lines of the battle for freedom. May God have mercy on our souls. Mm, 1950. In a shocking betrayal of trust, Klaus Fuchs, a German-British physicist, was unmasked as a Soviet spy in 1950. Fuchs, a key player in the top-secret Manhattan Project, casually passed crucial atomic secrets to the Soviet Union. The Manhattan Project, a colossal undertaking involving nearly 130,000 individuals and costing close to $2 billion, was a joint effort of the US, UK and Canada to develop nuclear weapons. Fuchs, after serving nine years in a British prison, made his way to East Germany to resume his career as a physicist. And now, to delve deeper into the ramifications of Fuchs's actions, we turn to our reporter, Hardeman Pesto. I'm here with Dr. Klaus Fuchs, a German-British physicist who was convicted of violating the Official Secrets Act by supplying information from the Manhattan Project to the Soviet Union. Dr. Fuchs, can you tell us about your involvement in the Manhattan Project? Yes, Hardeman. I, I was a theoretical physicist working on the project which was a research program during World War II to develop nuclear weapons. 
and you were convicted of passing secrets to the Soviet Union? That's correct. I was sentenced to nine years in prison in the UK before moving to East Germany to continue my career as a physicist. Pesto, can you tell us how many people were employed on the Manhattan Project and how much it cost? Well, Martin, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I believe it was a significant number of people and a significant amount of money. Significant, Pesto. Can you be more specific? I believe it was around 130,000 people and nearly used $2 billion, with over 80% of the cost for producing fissile material for the weapons. And how do you know this, Pesto? I read it in a book, Martin. A book, Pesto? Which book? I don't remember the title, Martin. It was a big book with a lot of pages. And you expect us to believe that you have accurate information from a book you can't even name? Well, I think it was a reliable source, Martin. Pesto, thank you for that enlightening report. I'm sure our viewers appreciate your commitment to accuracy and reliability. Thank you, Martin. I always strive to provide the best information possible. Yes, we can all see that. That's Hardiman Pesto, reporting from... Well, we're not quite sure where he's reporting from. And Dr. Klaus Fuchs, thank you for joining us. And now... The Dari Seal, 1672. The year is 1872 and history has been made. Yellowstone National Park, the first of its kind, has been established by President Ulysses S. Grant, a military man who led the Union Army to victory in the Civil War. The park, a vast expanse in Wyoming, the least populous state in the U.S., is home to an abundance of wildlife and geothermal wonders, including the now-famous Old Faithful Geyser. A visionary move, this park's establishment would pave the way for the protection of natural treasures the world over. And from the land of opportunity, where the Wild West still echoes with the spirit of adventure, we turn to our correspondent, Melody Wintergreen, for a closer look at this groundbreaking development. In the heart of Wyoming, a land of untamed wilderness and sparse human presence, a spectacle of nature is being unveiled. President Ulysses S. Grant, the military titan turned political powerhouse, is about to etch his name into the annals of environmental history. Yellowstone National Park, a sprawling canvas of geysers and grizzlies, is set to become the world's first national park. The ink has barely dried on the Yellowstone Act, but already this rugged expanse is being transformed into a sanctuary for America's natural wonders. Old Faithful, that punctual pillar of steam and scalding water, stands as a testament to the geothermal grandeur contained within these borders. Grant, the Civil War victor who now presides over a nation in reconstruction, is about to make his mark on a different kind of battlefield. The fight for conservation has found its champion in this unlikely hero. The same hands that once held the reins of Union armies are now poised to protect America's wildlife from encroaching human advancement. The air is thick with anticipation as Grant prepares to declare Yellowstone a national park. It's an act that will reverberate through time, setting a precedent for future generations and nations worldwide. The president's words echo across the landscape for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. A sentiment that captures the essence of this historic moment. And so it begins, an era where nature's majesty is preserved not just for today's citizens, but for countless generations yet unborn. As Grant signs off on this monumental decision, one can't help but feel that we're witnessing more than just the birth of a national park. 
we're seeing the dawn of global conservation. As Old Faithful erupts in timely celebration and bison roam freely under Wyoming's vast skies, it seems Yellowstone isn't just America's first national park, it's a symbol of hope for the future of our planet. So, as Ulysses S. Grant leaves his mark on this wild frontier, it's clear that this is one president who's not just leading a nation, but pioneering a movement. Melody Wintergreen, reporting for Newsbang Yellowstone National Park. Newsbang, uncovering the unseen, unearthing the unheard. Our sporting correspondent, Ryder Boff, takes us back to 1921, when the Australian cricket team, led by Warwick Armstrong, achieved the first Ashes whitewash in history. This feat remained unmatched for 86 years. And we're back to 1921, a year that saw men in white flannels and caps as the Australian cricket team, led by the colossal Warwick Armstrong, pulled off the first Ashes whitewash in history. A feat not repeated for 86 years. Talk about holding on to your laurels. The Aussies left England's cricketers with faces redder than an overripe tomato at a village fete. Warwick Armstrong, or the big ship as he was fondly known due to his rather generous girth, steered his crew through choppy waters to seize victory from the old enemy. And what a sight it must have been. Armstrong's figure looming large on the pitch like a grand ocean liner while English hopes sank faster than a lead balloon in a duck pond. The Ashes series itself is quite the tale. Born from a satirical obituary, mourning English cricket after a humiliating defeat by Australia on home soil back in 1882. It claimed English cricket had died and the body will be cremated and the ashes taken to Australia. Well, those ashes became quite literal when some bright spark presented an urn containing burnt bales to the victorious Australian captain Evo Bligh. Talk about macabre memorabilia. There goes Armstrong now. He's striding across the green battlefield like Gulliver among Lilliputians. His bat might well be mistaken for Excalibur if one squints hard enough against this blazing Antipodean sun. As current champions of both ICC World Test Championship and ICC Cricket World Cup, these chaps are enjoying their time atop Mount Olympus of cricketing prowess. Personal anecdote time. This reminds me of my own sporting triumphs. Well, near triumphs. There was that time I nearly won the egg and spoon race at St. Wimpleton's school fate until Mrs. Featherbottom's poodle ran amok, causing pandemonium amongst participants and poultry alike. So hats off to Armstrong and his band of merry men. May their whites stay forever, grass stain free, and their legacies long outlive even the most persistent of moths lurking in blazers hung up in dusty clubhouses across Australia. Uh... Ah, uh, that's all from yesteryear's sports desk. Remember, folks, keep your eye on the ball or you'll end up looking sillier than a batsman searching for his wicket in dense fog. Eighteen sixty-nine. Here to shed light on the remarkable periodic table and its inventor, Dmitry Mendeleev, is Calamity Prenderville. <laughs> Well, buckle up, because we're going on a journey back in time to 1869 when a Russian chap named Dmitry Mendeleev 
a man who looked like he'd be more at home in a Cold War bunker than a lab, decided to get all scientific and create something called the periodic table. Now, you might think, what on earth is a periodic table? Well, it's not a table you can put your cup of tea on, nor is it a table you can dance on, much to my disappointment. No, it's a table that organises all the elements in the universe, from the humble hydrogen to the mysterious unobtainium, into rows and columns based on their chemical properties. It's like a supermarket shelf for atoms. This table was a game-changer. It wasn't just a table, it was a prediction machine. Mendeleev used this table to predict the properties of elements that hadn't even been discovered yet. It's like he was some sort of elemental psychic. And if that wasn't enough, he even used it to correct existing knowledge about known elements. It's like he was the fact-checker of the elemental world. But the best part, this wasn't some sort of British innovation, no Siri, this was a Russian invention. But being the patriotic British lass that I am, I'm going to claim this as a British innovation. Because if there's one thing we British are good at, it's claiming other people's inventions as our own. Just ask the Americans about the internet. So there you have it, the periodic table. A table that's not for tea or dancing, but for organising the elements of the universe. And all thanks to a Russian chap who looked like he belonged in a Cold War bunker. Who would have thought, this is Calamity Prenderville, signing off. Good the news bang. Truth is the currency and we are the bank. Oh my God, 1973. As the clock strikes 1973, Pink Floyd unveiled their magnum opus, The Dark Side of the Moon, a concept album that delved into the psyche of former bandmate Sid Barrett and the band's own struggles. Recorded in two sessions at EMI Studios in London, it would go on to become one of the most revered progressive rock albums of all time. Now, to delve deeper into the making of this iconic album, we turn to our culture correspondent, Smithsonian Moss. Now, at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Ho, culture vultures! Smithsonian Moss here, and I've got a time-traveling treat for your ear holes. Buckle up, buttercups, because we're blasting back to 1973 when Pink Floyd painted our brains with their psychedelic masterpiece, The Dark Side of the Moon. Can you even? This album is like the holy grail of progressive rock, a sonic smoothie of existential dread and instrumental ecstasy. And get this, it's a concept album. That's right a full-blown, trippy-as-a-hippie concept album that delves deep into the mind-melting pressures of life and the mental health of their former bandmate, Sid Crazy Diamond Barrett. Recorded in the legendary Abbey Road Studios, where the ghosts of the Beatles probably floated around like, Oi, mate, that's a bit dark, innit? Pink Floyd was laying down tracks that would become the soundtrack to every dorm room chill session for decades to come. And let's talk about that iconic album cover, shall we? a prism turning light into a rainbow. It's like the band was saying, here, have some color for your gray matter. It's so simple, yet so mind-bogglingly deep, like a stoner's musings on a particularly introspective Tuesday. Now, I wasn't even a zygote in 73, but let me tell you, this album still slaps harder than a bassist on a caffeine binge. It's got everything, 
Money, time, fear, madness, and a heartbeat that'll make you check if you're still alive. So here's to The Dark Side of the Moon, the album that's been spinning on turntables and in our heads for over half a century. It's the gift that keeps on giving, like a never-ending acid trip without the pesky side effects. All right, rock historians, that's all the time I've got before I fade to black. Keep your vinyl spinning and your brains grinning. This is Smithsonian Moss, signing off with a bang and a flash of rainbow light. The news bang, sifting through the ashes of disinformation. 1958. A remarkable ecclesiastical figure, Archbishop Samuel Stritch of Chicago, has left an indelible mark on the Roman Catholic Church. As the first American member of the Roman Curia, Stritch's influence extended beyond the Windy City, reaching the highest echelons of the Vatican. His tenure as pro-prefect of the Sacred Congregation for Propagation of the Faith showcased his commitment to spreading the faith, yet Stritch's impact transcended bureaucracy as he served over two million Catholics in Illinois, shaping the spiritual lives of countless congregants. And from the Vatican, here's Pastor Kevin Monstrance, with more on the life and legacy of Archbishop Samuel Stritch. Thank you. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be back amongst such fine company as yourselves. Now, I must say, this chilly weather lately has me feeling my age in my bones. Put me in mind of that winter I spent snowed in up in Nunavut some years back. Got trapped in an igloo with a pack of sled dogs and a nun named Sister Mary Margaret. Or was it Jane? One does tend to lose track. We kept warm by staging nightly performances of The Sound of Music though I confess my portrayal of Mother Superior left something to be desired. I've never been one for the cornet wimple look. <laughs> but I digress. On to weightier matters of the Church. This news about Archbishop Stritch has stirred some long-dormant memories of my seminary days in Chicago. Back then, the Archbishop was a fellow by the splendid name of Cornelius Cardinal O'Leary. Jovial old boy with a laugh that could crack plaster. He took a shine to me and my classmates, forever popping by to pinch our cheeks and slip us sweets after Compline. Growing lads need their sugar, he'd chuckle. <laughs> well, one winter's eve after night prayer, we decided to repay the good cardinal's kindness with a prank. You see there was an old marble statue of Pope Leo XIII outside the rectory that had recently toppled off its plinth during a storm. It lay there on the snowy ground, His Holiness's serenelli bearded face gazing heavenward. We hatched a plan to prop the statue back up on the plinth and dress it in some of Cornelius's spare robets and hat. <laughs> Come morning, we were rewarded with the sound of the cardinal's shriek echoing across the courtyard. Rushing outside, he alternated between blessing himself and cursing at the sight of his stone doppelganger. Once he realised it was us seminarians behind the joke, he laughed loud and long, saying we'd added a decade to his life from the shock. <laughs> I tell you, we were lucky to avoid a stern penance for that one, but Cardinal Cornelius was ever a good sport, though I don't believe Leo ever made it back onto his plinth. <laughs> well, quite the silly tale but it reminds us of kinder times and those mentors who touched our lives with mirth. 
Here's hoping Archbishop Stritch brings that same spirit of laughter and guidance to the Curia. But for now, I must away. Thank you again, and may your dreams be full of guardian angels and mischief. <laughs> And now let's take a look at tomorrow's headlines. The Times, Rolling Thunder Roars in Vietnam. There's a photo there of a cloud that looks like a potato. The Guardian, Kyrson captured by Russians in Ukrainian invasion. They've got a diagram there of a frowning bear. The Independent, Communists, revolutionaries and syndicalists unite in Moscow. There's a picture there of a man with a very large moustache. And finally, the sun, boffins discover cheese can dream. That's it. On the day that a man who thought he was a chicken was proved wrong by a team of scientists, we say goodbye. Remember, the news is what we tell you it is. And if you don't like it, well, there's always the weather. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.